But we are going to continue our study today about man's new nature. Of course, this isn't uh, nature after salvation. This is nature after the fall. Mankind's new nature after the fall of Adam. So to review last week a little bit, in the natural state, all people are guilty, all people have fallen short, all people are incapable of doing spiritual good, and all people are condemned by God. Ooh, boy, we're just lifting you up today, aren't we? Uh, man now exists with the image of God, but also with a fallen nature that opposes God. It's a both-and, a both-and situation. We looked at Genesis 6 uh, about how terrible the world was before the flood. And what was unique about that, but what was also not unique about that. Look at Psalm 51. David said, in sin he was conceived. He was sinful from conception. Jeremiah 17, we looked at how the heart is deceitful, desperately sick. Who can understand it? That applies to every human heart. And we looked at Romans 3, where it's clear that all people are guilty. There's none righteous, no, not one. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their mouths are open graves. John Frame again. Uh, this is a good quote, worth repeating. These passages describe what we are apart from Christ. There is some danger in this procedure because the Bible's description of sin apart from grace are terrible. Taken in themselves, they destroy hope. But the Bible does encourage us to take these evaluations in themselves in order to take away the hope that we can save ourselves. We looked at uh, depravity, and we start to define depravity by three words. The first was corruption, and we went through, and I think we got all the way through corruption, talking about how uh, corruption doesn't mean inability. It doesn't mean that man is unable to reason, but it means that um, man's reasoning is corrupt. So even though it's there, it's corrupt. And uh, men are incapable of pleasing God. So maybe we can start here, Romans 8. So I don't think we looked at this passage uh, from Scripture last week. Romans 8, 5 to 8. Romans 8. Nothing will tear you down and nothing will build you up like Romans 8. Yeah, let's marinate on these words a little bit. Starting in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if we were to look at the whole of humanity from this, who are those who have their mindset according to the Spirit? Who are those that exist according to the Spirit? As we see that phrase in verse 5. Who are those? Those who are in Christ. Who live according to the Spirit. Is there any chance that anyone outside of Christ could be according to the Spirit? No. Because that's, that's what he says here. If indeed 
If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There you go. There you go. <clears throat> now, who are those according to the flesh? Who are those with the mindset on the flesh? Everybody else. Everybody. Until it is fixed. Flesh is divine, defined in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, for one, have to say, well, all unbelievers. Right? Because if we're looking at there are only two options. One is to have your mindset on the flesh, and the other is to have your mindset on God and pleasing God, being according to the Spirit. There are only two options. And in that one, according to the Spirit, you only have believers. But is that 24-7, 365, that their minds are set on things of the Spirit? No, because they are still sinful, and they will be And... I'd say there are moments when, as a born-again Christian, you still have your mind set on the flesh sometimes, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, now does that make you, does that undo you being according to the Spirit? Or you being identified with Christ? Well, no, it doesn't. It's the paradox. It's the paradox, okay? So for the Christian, you've entered into this life where you are fully in the camp of being according to the Spirit. You've been fully placed in the kingdom of light. Yet at the same time, you're in a body of death. (laughs) You are fully, totally, completely exalted with Christ in the heavenly places. And yet you're in a body of death. Now, for the non-believer, they're in a body of death, period. (laughs) There is no, but they're also here. Uh, That's not the case. So when we consider someone apart from Christ... We recognize they are the ones in the flesh, and in the flesh it is impossible to please God in any way. That's their only option is to be in the flesh until they're saved, until they're born again, until they're regenerated, made new. All right? Although man is able to think and to reason and have desires and affections, he is unable to please God with any of them. The picture being painted is starting to look Bleak. I think that might have been where we left off last week. Bleak picture indeed. Well, let's make it bleaker. Let's keep it. Let's keep going into darkness here. <laughs> Before we can get to the light, we've got to go further into darkness. Guilty, because all are condemned in Adam. It is necessarily true that all are guilty of Adam's sin. So, just a couple chapters back from where we were to chapter five of Romans. Let's have someone read verses 14 through 16. Romans 5, 14 through 16. Okay, go ahead. It's right after 513. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> when you mark your book up like I do, you have to hunt for the little That's good. That's a good problem to have. Okay, and it's starting with number... 14. 14. Eight. No, 5. Sorry. There's 9, there's... Oh, chapter 5, verse 14. 12, 13. <laughs> my goodness, this is crazy. Okay, so mine and NIV starts in the middle of sentence with 14. Okay. Back up? No, just start in 14. All right, sorry. because those who are led by the Spirit of God... For chapter 5. Move right over to 5. <laughs> I just found 14. Okay, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not, the gift is not like the trespass, for if many died by the trespass of the 
one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought in condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? All right. So we're talking about one man's sin. Look at verse 15. Whose sin are we talking about? Whose trespass? Adam. Adam. Okay. So in verse 15 and verse 16, it said that his one sin brought about something to all. What was brought about to all in verse 15 by his one sin? Death. Death. Okay. By one transgression, many died. Okay, and what about verse 16? Verse 16, one man's sin brought about what? Judgment. Free gift. One man's sin, not the, good, not the act of righteousness, yeah. but the act of sin. Okay. Judgment. To who? What does it say? Verse 16, judgment to who? It says, one transgression resulted in condemnation. Who's condemned? <coughs> Who's condemned already? All, All people. John 3.17. You guys remember, you guys know John 3.16. Mm -hmm. John 3.17, what does Jesus say? He said, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save those who are lost. Paraphrase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let me give you the exact phrasing. Okay. Let's see. Um, for God did not send his son to the world to judge the world, that the world might be saved through him. Very good. And then verse 18, for he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So all men are under judgment, aren't they? And it's because of whose sin? Adam's. Okay. Very good. Adam's sin brought death and judgment to all people. We've covered this in our previous lesson a couple weeks ago. Um, Adam being the head of humanity. What Adam did was on behalf of all people. Furthermore, every honest person will admit personal acts of sin that have been committed since youth. All people are completely guilty. So it's not just that Adam sinned and were judged. Adam sinned and we died spiritually. But we also sin ourselves, don't we? <laughs> it's both and. It's not either or. Whose sin are you judged for? Well, it's both. You're it's, yeah. Because <laughs> you, you sin. Um, it's not that you sin and that makes you a sinner. You're born. You're born. Yes. Spiritually dead. That's our nature. Right. Okay. So you're guilty. The punishment for this guilt is awful. And it must be. When we think about judgment, we're judged because we're guilty. The holy and eternal creator of all has a holy and eternal punishment for all guilty sinners, which is all people. And let your mind go there. This is the doctrine of hell, right? Is it important that we teach 
the doctrine of hell when we are proclaiming the gospel? Absolutely. Even to our children? Yes. Yeah, especially the Lord. <laughs> yeah, yes, put the fear of God in the ones you got to live with. <laughs> For sure. Especially yes. yes, because they don't yeah. believe there's a hell. That's right. <clears throat> yes. You can see what has happened in our culture. Even in the early days of movies, there is always judgment eventually to the bad person. Yes. And since we stopped, you know, once we get God out of the classroom, and we would read the Bible in, in public school when I went to school. And that's how we started the day. We would sing hymns in public school. We had the consciousness of sin and hell, and the holiness of God's word was taught, and it was just accepted. And as soon as you lose that concept, I mean, that's, look what the suicide rate is. People used to be afraid to kill themselves because they knew what was waiting them. Yeah. But now there is no fear. It's just another thing to do. That's yeah. one of your options. Yeah. When I went to school, uh, it was reduced to the pledge. Uh, we never did prayers or hymns or anything like that. But we at least said the pledge every day, which uh, there are pros and, and pro and con lists to that. But at least it says under God. At least there's a recognition. If nothing else, at least there's a recognition every day that you're saying we're under God. And today, uh, of course, that's probably a foreign concept. At private school, do they do the pledge or anything yeah, like we that? Do the pledge. Okay. I imagine public school. That's probably, probably a not. forgotten thing of the past. Yeah. They used to do it in California. When I was going to grade school there. It was a little outside because it was always good weather. Mm -hmm. The flag beater were gathered around the town. It's allegiance to back to classrooms. Yeah, we did have a fellowship of Christian athletes. When I got saved, I became the president of that my senior year. Um, we had the see you at the poll day where you'd, everybody would go and you'd meet around the flagpole and you'd pray for the country, pray for your local leaders, pray for the school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, did that once or twice a year. <clears throat> but, uh, boy, I'd be surprised now if that's allowed um, in public schools. Maybe in Utah, you still can. <laughs> but, uh, boy. I think that's what God is doing, is he's maybe showing us the world now what it's know what it was like yeah. and now what's going to be like without it yeah yeah, yeah that's right without his grace uh lift his hand yeah that's right short rabbit trail yes go ahead the third grade teacher in Payson was reprimanded because he spoke about biblical creation oh, oh yeah that's right um, can't do that third grade mm. Yeah, that's right. You can't even mention it because what comes with the idea, this, like what Jerry was saying, what comes with the idea of God? Moral accountability. Moral accountability. And that's why so many people want nothing to do with that idea because all of a sudden, oh, there's a maker and he's set rules and he has designed us for a certain purpose and to live a certain way. And if we go outside of that, we're rebelling against him. We don't want that accountability. All right, so summing up, depravity. Man's depravity actually has less to do with the corruption and rebellion of people as it does with the righteousness and holiness of God. This is an important point to ponder here. The more that we understand how God must be perfect in all he does, 
the more we'll understand depravity. If we start with man when we think about sin, we're starting in the wrong place. We have to, and that's why earlier in the class we start with uh, theology proper, all the attributes of God, and how God is holy. And we have to recognize that first, otherwise sin, and ju certainly judgment for sin, won't make any sense. If we understand the holiness of God as much as we can, then we'll start to get our minds wrapped around man's depravity. Wayne Grudem says, Therefore, in the cross, we have a clear demonstration of the reason God punishes sin. If he did not punish sin, he would not be a righteous God, and there would be no ultimate justice in the universe. But when sin is punished, God is showing himself to be a righteous judge overall, and justice is being done in his universe. He's righteous, and he's a judge. John Frame, we cannot please God, and therefore we cannot save ourselves from his wrath. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We cannot come to God out of our own strength and resources. We have no hope but grace. No hope but in Christ. So now let's start answering hard questions. I gave you plenty of space at the bottom of your worksheet to answer some of life's toughest questions. <laughs> you might want to use the back of your sheet or something, because we're going to be getting into into some thick stuff here, okay? First question, you got to make sure you use that half inch by two inch space mm -hmm. to answer, do men and women have a free will? <laughs> so let's kick this around. Uh, now that we've, we've studied anthropology, this is the end of anthropology, okay? This is our sixth, I think, lesson in this. We talked about how God created us in a perfect condition in his image and likeness. Man existed in perfection. There was no sin. And then we spent the last four lessons talking about through the fall, how everything has been affected by man or in man. By sin, everything has been affected. And so now as we consider how deep the root goes of sin and how far its branches reach, do men and women have a free will? Let's get some thoughts out on this. Yes. Okay. I'm angry with Jerry. Okay, now, semicolon. Yes or no, semicolon, give your explanation. <laughs> God created us in his own image. Yep. And it was what God has done, and by doing that, he allowed man to have that ability to have a free will. As he created all things, there's... Man was given a free will. This is kind of like some angels have it, others do not. Not a good comparison, probably, but it's an understanding of that angels, certain angels, that have a free will. Obviously, the devil was one of them, hmm. per se. But somehow we follow this suit real quick. But um, that free will is based on us allowing not to choose him, but to choose sin. Okay. So there's freedom within one realm, and you can't go outside of that realm in your natural state. That's correct. Because if we go back, um, let's see, to incapability, right here, this statement. Although man is able to think, reason, and have desires and affections, he's unable to please God with any of them. If we all agree with that statement, then this puts a cap on man's freedom or limits him to a certain realm. That there's freedom within the sin realm of flesh, realm of sin. Because if he's 
incapable of pleasing God. We looked at Romans 8, 5 through 8. He cannot please God if his mind is set on the flesh. Then his freedom is <coughs> incapable of going into the pleasing God realm. So his freedom or his will is free. But limited. But limited. <laughs> well, okay, okay. So, I mean, are we playing with words there? Because when we think of free will, we think that it is uninhibited, free, meaning it can go anywhere. So I would tend to say we have a will, but it's limited. Our choices are limited. Yeah. I don't like the word free because that implies yeah, and so I, we're saying the same thing from two different sides, essentially. Um, where, you know, from like what Jerry was saying, men are free to um, we are able to pick their career and to choose their socks and all that stuff, right? But uh, from a spiritual perspective, the will is an utter bondage to sin. Yes. So, yes. Logan. It'd be kind of yes and no, though, because saying no to does man have free will, our will is still under God's will, and God's will is dominant, right? Yeah. And so go to Romans 9, 16. You're not going to find a lot of free will statements in Romans 9, are you? <laughs> so it says, so then it depends not on human will or exhortation, right. yeah. but on God who has mercy. Yes. So, no. Right. <coughs> That's correct. Um, where this gets really touchy for a lot of people is in the realm of salvation, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's what everybody's concerned about when you're having this conversation is, okay, if man cannot freely of his own accord choose to believe in Christ, then what are we saying? What are the implications of this? I've sat in a conversation like this this week with a fellow believer. Doesn't that mean that God just created some people to go to hell? That's, you know, the impulse. That's the reaction. Is what, what am I doing out evangelizing them? Why, if, I'm, if I'm sharing the gospel with somebody and that person is rejecting it, they're obviously, God hasn't chosen them. And so, I mean, what am I supposed to do? You keep evangelizing because you don't know what We could give them to stamp it on their heads, you know, when at birth it would, would be nice. Or like a mole on their right ear or something, some Not sort of indicator. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> Not our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, that, but that's the emotional reaction we get to this. And so we have to do, and this is the challenge every time we study Scripture, we have to do our best to get outside of our own emotional presuppositions and let God speak on His, his terms. Don't require God to speak on your terms. Take the text for what it is. He's the one who gave it to us. We're here as... His vassals, here we are, stewards of what He has given us. It is our duty just to study the text and see what it says. Because if we're going to get all tied up in it emotionally and say, this can't be right. I remember before I believed this, I was having a lunch with one of my professors, my theology professor from Bible College, one of his pastor friends in the area. We went out to Dixon's Chili in Independence, Missouri. And... You know where uh, Jesus is coming back to. Uh, <laughs> we were uh, eating lunch there that day, and they're, they're both um, Reformed or Calvinistic, whatever kind of label you want to put on them in their thinking of this. 
And I wasn't at the time. I was very much against it. And when they were trying to get me to think through these things at that lunch, I remember saying, I could never believe in a God like that. Because <laughs> that's just how you feel with your emotions when you, when you start touching on these things. I could never believe in a God like that. Well, what are you really saying in that statement? What was I saying in that statement? I'm bigger than God. That is what I'm saying. And I was rebuked on the spot. And I'm thankful for it. I won't forget that. He said, what, what did you just do? You just said God must fit into your preconceived expectations for what, how life works. We can't do that. And that's a lifelong challenge. Because we're constantly reverting back to those things. But we have to let God speak on His terms. So... Yes, go ahead. Well, yes, I look. Yeah. <laughs> After salvation, mm -hmm. we still struggle with the propensity of God's will mm. in doing things. I think it's only through His Holy Spirit and dwelling mm -hmm. that we do choose to do yeah. certain things. Oh, yes. Things, period. Yeah. But our still propensity, in other words, is still sinful. Yeah. And, and, and that is a great mystery to me. I've been thinking about this recently because Scripture says we're new. Scripture says our nature is new. Scripture says the old man has died. And there's a new man. But you know what else Scripture says? <laughs> put off the old man. How, why should we put him off when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ? That old man was crucified, right? And then we're told, put him off. But I thought he was dead. Daily. <laughs> yeah, I die daily, Paul says. And that's a struggle because even though we are new and we have new natures, those new natures are coexisting somehow still with the old flesh that's stuck around. Mm -hmm. Because we still sin. And where does that come from? Our nature. Okay, yeah, something that's still there. And so in the, in the glorification, when we are ultimately saved by resurrected bodies, and even before that, when we die and our spirit goes to be with the Lord, at that time, there is some sort of ultimate removal of that propensity that's in us. So it's, it's a stages thing. Where, right, okay, so when we're in our natural state, you're in the flesh, that's all you can do is be in the realm of the flesh. That's all you can do. Then you get saved, and there's something that happens where the old man dies, but also needs to keep dying. And there's this new nature, and there's a coexisting and a mingling. And then you die, if the Lord tarries. You die, and your, your flesh remains in the ground, and your spirit goes to be with the Lord. And now you're apart from sin totally. And then there's the last step where you're rejoined with your body, and physically you live forever with no sin. It's a marvelous, mysterious thing. Logan. So that thought, though, I mean, I think it kind of uh, get my thoughts together. But so we're human, and that's a problem. Yes, <laughs> I can, I can affirm that statement. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, but thinking that further, so Jesus, when he came, he took human form. Yes. He was still spotless. Yes. And do we think that was easy for him? You know. So if you take that down, huh. you know, he was tempted. Yeah. All right, just like we were. Yeah. And he. Put the devil off. Get thee behind me. It looked all good there. But look what happened when he got to the cross. He was sweating blood. He was in great anguish. And he was yeah. saying, Jesus, take it from me. I mean, he was struggling. But he said, not your will. but I yeah. mean, not my will, but thine yes. will. Yes. And it did happen. He, he, he got over it. But still, I think that was the human in him coming out. Yeah. And it was... Not so a result of the fall, though. 
Do what? Not a result of the fall. So there was no propensity to sin within Jesus, right? We talked about this in um, the Christology section, that, that term impeccability. Jesus was unable to sin. He was unable to think against God's commands in any way. He was untouched by sin totally. So, yeah, but there was still anguish and struggle. Sweat coming out like drops of blood. So in other words, yeah. my thinking is how hard is it going to be for us <laughs> right. as humans? Yeah. Yes. Who are still affected by the fall. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Walker. So, jealousy, that's a sin, right? No, not always. God is jealous. So if you do jealousy out of anger? <coughs> if you have selfish ambition in your heart, jealousy is a sin. But it's, it's not a sin to be jealous for something that you've been given um, to steward, something that belongs to you, that's your possession. Uh, we see that in God, where he's jealous for Israel, it says multiple times. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And in the New Testament word for jealousy is zealous. It's the word zealous, which we use in a different sense. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Okay. Is there a difference between will and choice? So we've answered the question, hopefully. Do men have a free will? I think we're pretty comfortable settled there. But is there a difference between will and choice? Yes. And if so, what's the difference? And how do they play together? Well, it's like you said, uh, when we have free will, you know, a guy can choose to get up in the morning and choose what socks to do. That's his choice, but his will is whether or not he's like gonna do, he's gonna go worship or something. Okay. I think that's, yeah, that's good. Wor um, worship God or worship self. Mm -hmm. Or uh, worship a false God. Yeah, um, I think that, that's good. There's The choices that we make are individual acts. But what can we say about the limitation of our choices as it pertains to our will? When it starts getting spiritual. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so if we're saying, look... Man's will isn't free in his natural state in the sense that he can choose to honor God or not. All he can do is rebel. His will is in bondage to sin. So that means all of his choices then are going to be limited to that will. His choices are limited to what his will is. Um, can, the, can man in his natural state choose out of a desire to please God... To show up here and worship him corporately with us. Well, no, he doesn't. Have, he can't have a desire to please God. His will is under bondage to sin. Now, can can a man show up and come to church and join us and sit next to us and et cetera, et cetera? Well, sure, but not out of a will to honor God and to please God, because the mindset on the flesh cannot please God. So there's a little bit of nuance there. Well, part of that though is God's view of it as opposed to our view of it. We may think we are wanting to honor God. We may know, well, I, don't, I can't talk from that perspective. Yeah. But I would think that we, we, I mean, we're, we can deceive ourselves. There you go. We are totally deceived yes. in so many ways as it is. It's, it's God's perspective, though, that anyone who is does not have the spirit of Christ in them is not going to be pleasing to them regardless yes. of what they choose to do. Yes. And so the choices are limited by the will. Now, from a carnal perspective, just man looking at man, we can't really see the difference a lot no, of times. Right. We can't. 
Because actions are just actions and we can't interpret the heart. Only God can see the heart. But it's important to note that their choices are limited by their will in the sense that whether they're choosing to do something out of honor to God or not. Walker than Logan. All right, so does this, like, so say somebody's, it's, it's their will to dishonor God, or right, like, not go to church and not worship Him, but can you change your will by, like, going to church and worshiping Him and believing in that, or is it, like, always your destiny? No, you cannot change your own will. That's a good question. I don't know if that's... Huh. Well, yeah, we'll get to that one in the next one. Okay. <laughs> Logan. I don't know. I, just, uh, I was thinking about that will and choice. Could you say uh, God's will versus a uh, pharisaical choice? <laughs> like, explain that a little more. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because the Pharisees... They were doing much of their ministry out of the flesh, certainly, it was a and selfish desire. Right. But ultimately, they thought they were in God's will, but it was, it was definitely off. Yes, I mean, many of them were absolutely just depraved. None of them had been born again. Selfishness. Uh, no, I shouldn't say none of them. In many cases, groups of them, none of them had been born again. Like uh, Matthew 23, when Jesus goes off on the Pharisees. Yeah. The things he says about them are things you wouldn't be able to say about born-again believers. Uh-huh. Right. But the same thing applies to a lot of Christians nowadays. I mean, I shouldn't say Christians. A lot of would-be Christians nowadays. Well, religious groups. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Where they've, they've not experienced the freedom of the gospel. They've not experienced the freedom of God. And therefore, um, their ministries reflect that. So there is a big difference between will and choice. Yeah, there is a difference, but they but they go together. So it's kind of like faith and repentance. There's a difference between the two, but they kind of they, you can't really separate. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. Shift to that. Too deep or too far away from it. Each one of these has the potential to go go real deep. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> uh, the common, I, I guess, is a term that's being used as a common. Call, or maybe even more explanatory is that we can all see God through His creation yep. and other things, <clears throat> but that does not lead us to the fact of whom He truly is. Um, and there, in, in essence, is where we confuse will and choice sometimes, because we, even though we have. Uh, we come to church, we hear the message, we may even see the things that go on, and, and but that does not give us the ability to choose God. We can be blinded by some of that. Yes. You're making a to, important point. Blinded, to think that we are, and maybe the Pharisees did it too, thought they were in the rights with God, but they were wrong. We even get into that religious stance even sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is very important. So you could say either general revelation or common grace, and I'll come back and touch on those briefly. These things are sufficient for condemnation, but not for salvation. So Jerry was talking about general revelation, meaning you look around and you know that there's a God. 
Uh, this is Romans 1. This is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. That is sufficient for you to know that a God exists. And that's sufficient to condemn you. Because you know He exists. And common grace. Kind of the same idea that God has revealed Himself. But also that God has been involved in people's lives. That God is involved in uh, our cultures and our nations. He's involved in these things. And shows grace to people. Causes them to experience Him. And experience His grace. To a degree. These things are sufficient for condemnation. But not for salvation. Meaning. They make Him known. To the human. They uh, are a witness to his existence. Therefore, they know, yet they do not believe, they do not submit, they continually rebel. Because man's nature is to suppress the truth of God and replace God with an idol. So they're sufficient for condemnation, but not for salvation. What does salvation take? Not general revelation and not common grace, but special revelation and particular grace. It takes grace that's imparted to a particular soul. That's what salvation takes. And it takes the special revelation of the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So these things are sufficient for condemnation, but not for salvation. So then that that does go right into our next question, which is what does God expect from humans who are naturally depraved? So here they are, born into sin. No. Conceived in sin, hearts are given over to sin, their will is in bondage to sin. Through his general revelation and his common grace, they're condemned already because they haven't believed in the Son of God. They're judged because of Adam's sin imparted to them, imputed to their account. What does God expect from them? (coughs) Nothing. Because he expects worship and obedience. He does. It's, he designed them. Designed now, them. define expect the way you just used well, it. Oh, yeah. Because it's, it's kind of a setup for you. Because I use the word expect. But, but let's just define that word and then I think we'll be okay. He, he knows that. It is the way it's supposed, that what he expects is what he originally designed the for. Uh, yes. And now you're going to explain how God thinks. To <laughs> <laughs> is God sitting back waiting for people who are dead to make themselves come no, alive? Is oh, okay. So can we agree on that point and start there? God isn't expecting men to perform miracles in their own hearts. So, going back to what your question was, Walker. Can men freely start to change their own will by doing these things that God requires, right? I mean, you look at the the Ten Commandments or in the New Testament, uh, well, the summation of the Ten Commandments, loving God and loving neighbor. In the New Testament, the idea of assembling together and uh, studying Scripture, praying, these things. Can men begin to change their will through those things? Something like that, if, if that's occurring, it's obviously God... And his effectual calling is, is, is taking, that's what's happening in his heart. He's not, you may think, well, I'm, I'm doing this. You know, I wasn't before, but I'm doing this now. I'm doing this now. I'm doing this now. Not without God backing on it and, and 
and bring him it's God to give us faith. Yes. You know. So how many active agents are there in salvation? When someone comes to save, how many active agents are there? Or when someone comes to salvation, when someone believes and is saved and born again. Who is being active? God. God. Is he the only one? Initially. Okay. Initially. Yeah. We love because? And this isn't a general, he first loved us by doing something passive, meaning he died on the cross, he rose again, and now he steps back and he's waiting for dead men to wake themselves up. We love because he first loved us, meaning not only that, but then the application of that to our hearts is his first act of love to us individually and personally. And that's what wakes us up. What we're saying is, you're born again by the work of God alone. As he imparts faith to you. Because we're, we come to know the Lord, and this is pretty much everybody. We come to know the Lord thinking, well, I freely believed, and that's why God made me born again. But what we're seeing in Scripture, if we take sin for what it says it is, understanding man's condition, you had faith because God caused you to be born again to a living hope. He initiated this in your heart. Now, we're not saying this eliminates all responsibility of man and we're just being tossed around like pawns on a chessboard kind of thing. But we are saying God is sovereign in this because dead men can't wake themselves up. Well, you know, with the effectual calling, and I love this reading about that, is that in, even in my own life, I can look back mm-hmm. way back. Yes. Little things here and there, right? This yes. This happened. That happened. Yes. Didn't know it then. Mm-hmm. Thought about it, didn't know it then. Mm-hmm. But that it was just God doing his thing. Yes. Bam. I got saved at 16. When I was in kindergarten, my parents put me in an after-school program called Kingdom Kids. It was taught by a couple of uh, charismatic Methodists, a man and a woman. <laughs> but they gave us Bibles. We highlighted on the outside of our Bibles the sections of um, the Torah and the prophets and poetry, wisdom literature, gospels, epistles. I mean, we were learning this stuff. I was memorizing verses. I won a trophy in kindergarten for memorizing verses. Didn't know the Lord. I mean, I was living in a home where the gospel wasn't present. But you look back and it's moments like that. And there are several things like that. In sixth grade, I, I went down in an altar call in sixth grade. My basketball team went to a church service. I came forward. Did the thing. I was hearing something. God was doing something in my heart and mind. Came forward. I don't think I was saved then. But there was something that happened. God's wooing. God's drawing. And then ultimately at age 16, through some events, God just came down, interrupted my life, and rescued me. That's it. I I pray, obviously, for children and grandchildren, stuff like that. What I, you know, for salvation, but I... I find myself thanking him for what he is doing yes. in their lives that maybe you know sometimes we can see a little bit, sometimes we you know we can't. But knowing full well he is doing that and at some point faithful human and then don't And how much more powerful can our prayers be with this understanding? We can pray. God, I know you are mighty to save. You've saved me. You've worked in my life. Please, pleading with God, begging God to save this person or that person. Because if you believe that man moves first, 
We love God because we first love God. If you believe that's how it works, and that God doesn't intervene, the best prayer you can pray is, God, please set up the circumstances that you know that would cause this person to freely believe out of his own will. That's not a very powerful prayer. And you can't even pray for God to set up those circumstances because then he'd be intervening and stepping on those people's wills to set up the circumstances. So you just keep working back and then you're left with, Lord, if I have a conversation, please help me to say the right things. That's pretty much it. But if you believe that God is the one who has to break through to save somebody because they're dead, you're praying for the God of miracles to do a miracle. And that's a powerful, important prayer. We have 12 minutes left to do the rest of the hard questions. If people are so bad, then why aren't they all running around killing each other and stealing from one another? They are. They are. They are now. People are able to recognize and obey good laws, aren't they? So we're here we are saying how bad man is. Well, what, what about this? We've talked about this a couple times in this section. Can one of you attempt to explain this to me? First of all, there's a restrainer. Okay. Which is limiting madness. Um, and just because we say that we, the Bible says that we cannot please God, Nowhere says that we are as bad as each person is as bad as they can possibly be. We okay. Still have capacity. We have, as you say, our, our reasoning is still functioning, and you don't have to be born of God to know that hitting yourself with a hammer isn't a wise or an. It, it's something we would, we can choose not to do. Yeah, yeah. God's God's common grace, and in many ways, this plays out as a restraining function on the culture, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We can even say that God's common grace in a nation is shown by Christians being in places of leadership yes. and hearing evil ideas come up and being in a position to be able to suppress an evil idea or steer it away or whatever. Um, and so. Yes, in God's common grace, sin has been restrained in the culture to a degree. Walker? Yeah, I was going to say, like, what kind of defines the good laws? Because, like, I know that nowadays we have a bunch of, like, non-biblically correct like, mm-hmm. laws. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, the, law, the fact that a law exists at all yes. is God's common grace. Because what, what would happen if you took away the law? Chaos. And you took away Christians and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Then we're getting a lot closer to everybody running around killing each other and stealing from one another constantly, right? Well, before flood attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was really still as difficult for me as a irrational pacifist to think that maybe the United States, that God was. I don't know how to say this. I've never tried to say it before, but you know how our participation in World War II to limit the death of, you know, even things like guns and bombs can be used to limit other evil. I mean, it's crazy, but you gotta mm-hmm. leave room in there for it. Yes. 
Yeah, when you think about if the United States hadn't been involved in World War II, what world would we be living in right now? Be at peace, be keep Germany. Yeah. If we were alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we, we need to keep moving. Um, important question to answer. Infants who die. How do we reconcile this? If people are depraved, corrupt, guilty from conception, what do we make of miscarriages, um, infants who die after birth, uh, children even? Uh, you know, Ada is three and a half years old, almost four years old. What do we make of that if a child that age dies? And we're talking about God being a righteous judge and he's holy. Well, what do we re how do we reconcile these things? I don't know, God would have known what they were going to grow up to be. What do you mean? <laughs> like, God would have known that they would have well, made themselves alive even though they're dead? They can't <laughs> well, make themselves alive! Well, if they were sinful since conception... Then Which they are, because all humans are. are. Right. Then, I don't know, I guess the logical answer would be that they went to hell. Okay, so that, and that is one belief that Christians have. The other thing is that Jesus did pay for the sins of the whole world. And our judgment, according to John 3, is because we refuse to believe. We have a little elbow room to think that God applies the atoning work of Christ to, to those who really aren't cognitively yeah, uh, able. Because because of David's statement, we take hope. I think beyond David's statement, there's a better passage in the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy 1, uh, where the Israelites are about to enter the promised land. And he says, uh, you, this generation, none of you are going to enter. Except for two men's names. Who does he say are going to enter? Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua, good. I believe this is verse 30-ish. Um, let's see, maybe it's 40-ish. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's 30, 37 to 39. He says, okay, Caleb and Joshua will enter. And then he says, moreover, your little ones who you said will become a prey and your sons... And listen to this, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Mm -hmm. So the Israelites, besides Jacob and Caleb, or uh, Joshua and Caleb, the adults didn't want to go. And part of the reasoning was, these children, they're just going to get gobbled up by all these nations. We're all going to die. Even our kids, they're going to become a prey. And God says, your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they will enter. In God's perfect wisdom, it appears from this text, he's judging who the children are who were or weren't involved in making this decision and wanting to go or not wanting to go, cognitively able, and he allows those to go in who were not cognitively able to participate. And that's tough to wrestle with, but... Uh, well, you know, too, yeah. when, when he said that, what was it, uh, those over 20... Something like that. Uh, and he was talking about they were there for 40 years mm. in the desert. And so it's all those who were, were born are over 20. I don't know where I'm getting that from, but that they would would die once that generation had died. Yeah. You know, so he had looked 
or he knew ahead of time, I, I don't know, it's hard to explain that kind of stuff. If a given time, they, the last one of them would die, now we're going to go yeah. in there. But all those yeah. that were here before have to die. And it's all in his perfect wisdom. Exactly. I don't know if he could speed up so much. Yeah. All days are ordained. We know that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> Logan. Also, also, like in Matthew, where he uh, talks about unless you become like a little child. Yeah. I don't know. I think even with our given nature, born uh, from birth, there's a purity yeah. in a child. Yeah. A God -given an innocence. There's a, yeah. there's a genuine innocence. innocence. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, though they're still imputed with sin. They're still in innocence. Absolutely. So I, let me ask these two questions. I think this can sum it up and just settle it. Do any any people who die, whether in the womb as you know little little children or outside of the womb, anybody who dies, do any of them end up in a place they're not supposed to go? <laughs> Everyone goes exactly where they're supposed to go from God's perspective. We can leave it in that And is God perfectly glorified by that? If we can all agree on those things, then it's like, okay, we're all right. It'll be okay. Um, you've heard this argument. You've got people uh, who are out in Papua New Guinea somewhere in a tribe. They've never heard the gospel. Where do they go when they die? Hell. That's harsh, isn't it? Yeah. Why do you say that? Why don't, why don't they go to heaven? Because they didn't hear about the gospel and from nature were sinful. Hmm. Yeah. God has made it known to all. We're, right here, right? Yeah, we are without excuse. He has the heavens and earth. And that's the reason we'll see, just like in, in the uh, the spear thing, the guys were killed over in oh, Ecuador. Those guys, right? Yeah. Uh, Jim Elliot. Yeah, those people knew, even though they were cannibals. They did not eat their own people. It was okay to go next door and gobble up one of the, the neighbors. You know, just certain yeah. things were in them. They knew they had to cross over the boa, as they call it, yeah. you know, when they, when they died and stuff. So all that yes. is just in us. Now, now think about this, too. If you were to say, well, people who have never heard the gospel, they get to go to heaven. If you were to say that, What's the most loving thing we could ever do for them? Don't tell them. That's right. The most loving thing we could do for the world is have a whole generation of people who died never sharing the gospel. That's right. They'll all be in heaven. That's, and everybody starts going to heaven. Let's go build walls around people so no one ever shares the gospel with that tribe. Let's go build a big wall. Because that way, that, that'll be sure that they'll go to heaven. Crazy. Right? Crazy. It is imperative that we do all that we can to get the gospel out because people are perishing. Without the gospel. Are there degrees of sin? Meaning, this well, sin, yes. worse than that sin, worse than that sin. Well, there are degrees of punishment. Punishment, sin. Sin, sin in, that. in God's eyes. So that would imply that some sins are worse than others. Okay, resolve your conflict. You got <laughs> two minutes. Tell Jim. There's one priority of sin. Blessed of the Holy Spirit. Okay. I mean, yeah, that, that stands out as, whoa, all right. Yeah, you can't be forgiven of that, which is pretty wild to think about. The rest of it all is okay. Are some people worse than other people? 
Everything is both, right? I think we could we could fairly say from a biblical perspective that there are some people who are less restrained than others. Yeah, I'm right. Not everybody's a Hitler. Now, does everyone have the capacity to be Hitler? Yes. yes. Not everybody is... I mean, okay, you've got, you've got neighbors on both sides of you, I think, all of you. Hey, or around you. Yeah, you're on a corner. But uh, neighbor to the right, neighbor to the left. You like one of them better. One of them's more respectful than the other. You know, that sort of thing. Um, in your neighborhood, these houses, okay, you've got, you can go to the registered sex offender website and see the sex offenders and all that. Okay, you've got all these things going on where you recognize there are some people where it seems as though God has removed his restraining hand and allowed them to go naturally as they want to go in certain places. And then there are other people who God has been more restraining on. Now those people who have gone to prison, gone to jail, and had their worst reputation, those are probably the more likely candidates to get saved than the others. Because people who have been restrained in many ways, a lot of times think it's their own efforts that have been Not the rationale you use when you decide to let your children go play with the neighbor children. That's exactly that. right. Yes. We had a very, very, very traumatic event with our daughter about wanting to mm. hang out with some good LDS neighbor children. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, you're more evil than you know, and God is more righteous than you know. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Why don't we have that on our bumpers? Yeah, right. <laughs> Philippians 3.9 is good. Is that a good bumper sticker, Philippians 3.9? <laughs> um, read Ephesians 2, 1-10. Next week we start soteriology, and we'll talk about how the old man in Adam gets destroyed and how the new man in Christ comes to life. Okay? You missed 11. Missed, read the Bible is what I should have said. Where's the limit? <laughs> Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today and for this conversation, for your truth that you've preserved for us and you've made understandable to us. We ask that today you would bless our efforts as we worship you, that you would be pleased by what you see, that our hearts would be given over to you today, and that we would bring uh, sweet sounds to your ear, sweet-smelling aroma, our worship rising up from this place today. Bind us together by your Spirit Cause us to love you more and more, we ask in Jesus' name.